Thank you, Josh. Appreciate your leadership here, as well as Josh works with our student ministries and uh, help to mentor and develop future worship leaders and, and just students that would worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Glad to have Josh here. As he mentioned earlier, Ron uh, Rogowski, our pastor of worship here, is over in Albania. We have a sister-like relationship with a church in Lushnia, Albania, and it's called the Way of Peace Church. So Ron went over there for about two weeks or so, and he's working with that church to help train up leadership in worship. And uh, I've had an f- email back and forth with Ron. He's doing well, excited for what God is teaching him, and that he's having an opportunity to work with these over there as well. It's interesting because Ron is German. He speaks German, grew up in a home that spoke German. And he's going to be going to Germany on October the 31st. And you know why October 31st is important, right? In America, Halloween. But around the world, that's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, The history tells us that uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door on that day. And uh, that began really a chain reaction of good things in our world. It began this sense that the scriptures are those areas of God's truth that we should study, that Christ is the only way into heaven, that we go by faith and by grace and not by works, and we don't need an institution to save us. We have Christ himself alone. And so that Reformation really began to dramatically change, really in some ways, politics as well as the thinking of believers and those who need Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful for Martin Luther, and you're going to learn more about that on Wednesday nights in the series that's upcoming. But we just want to remember that we are still in the process of needing reformation. Uh, Each of us in our own hearts constantly being reformed by what Christ chooses to do and to walk by that same faith and that same Jesus that Martin Luther was convicted over as he would read through the book of Romans and see this beautiful truth of God's mercy and his grace. And so Ron will be there in Germany on October 31st and celebrate with uh, the Germans there as they remember and as we also remember that uh, great historic event. I want to let you know that uh, we're hit your, your guests here or perhaps have been a little hit and miss. We are a kind of a special season here at Calvary Church. Uh, I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell and been pastor here for a number of years. And it was a couple of years ago uh, that uh, God put on my heart that we need to be thinking about the future of Calvary Church beyond just from Sunday to Sunday. But I'm talking about future from 10 years to 20 years on into the future. We celebrated, Calvary Church did just a few days ago, our 86th birthday. And so Calvary is 86 years old. And uh, we're looking forward to, well, yes, we can clap for what God has been doing at Calvary Church. And we're thankful for all of your participation over the years as well. We're looking forward to the 100th anniversary and, of course, beyond that. But we're targeting that 100th anniversary and we're thinking, what kind of leadership, what kind of format should we have that we are as vital at age 100 as they were in the hundred years before that when the church began, where the teaching of God's word, global missions, were the foundational pillars upon which this church was built. We want those to still be strong uh, attributes of our church along with many other qualities as well. And I began to think that two years ago at age 100, I'm going to be somewhere above my current age. And so then, uh, therefore, I probably can't be doing this job at whatever age that happens to be, and I can't do the math. But you can, by looking at me, you can say, yeah, Dave, you're not going to be there at age 100. 
And so what we wanted to do is begin to transition and to consider ways that we could provide leadership that would build upon what has occurred, remembering the heritage of who we are, but also begin to transition into this great new future that God has for us. And so that began this journey about two years ago, and it's interesting because our speaker this morning, Bob Shank, was one of the first people that I talked to because we saw him as a wise man, a consultant. Bob's been involved at Calvary Church for many, many years. He was a, a, a key leader way back uh, in an era before me when the church went through some challenging times. He served on the elder board, has provided leadership for our church, and has uh, served a church of his own during an interim period of that, and then came back to Calvary Church. Uh, during the time that I've been here, he and all of his family are serving and worshiping together with us here, and we're thankful for his leadership. And so Bob and I would talk together along with Dave Herring, who was the chairman of the elder board at that time, as to, you know, what does this look like? What does transition, what does succession look like? And uh, began to piece together uh, some of the things and details and plans that are being implemented this year now. And so at some point about a year and a half ago, we brought it to the elder board and began to explain some of the ideas as to the transition succession plan. And uh, I let the elders know early on in that journey, uh, my three R's. And so I want to remind you of my three R's and uh, hopefully you can repeat them with me. I'm not going to resign, sorry for some people. Uh, I'm not going to retire, but I'm going to realign, realign my ministry here at Calvary Church. Somebody said just the other day, you're going to recycle yourself. And uh, I could use some recycling, believe me. But uh, we want to continue to serve together, Joy and I love being with you. We love you. We love to have an opportunity to have a role on into the future, but want to step aside from the role that we play and allow new leadership to come in. And that's why we're presenting to you on November the 12th, Pastor Eric Wakeling as the, the next senior pastor. And that's for you to uh, affirm on that day. And so on November the 12th, it'll be a one service Sunday at 10 a.m., and uh, we will worship together around communion and have a time where you're given the opportunity to vote, sample ballot for you to be able to look at and to understand that process as well. So that's a little bit of an update as to where we're at and where we're going, and we're excited for what God is going to continue to do in each of our lives, remembering that just as we sang, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus,' that Jesus is the senior pastor. He is the chief shepherd." And we're really still trusting in him for all that he would do in each of our lives. And so with that, it's great privilege for us to be able to introduce Bob Shank as he comes and brings God's word to us. Bob has been uh, really a national leader with his new ministry called the Master's Program. I'm actually wearing one of the shirts of the Master's Program. I went through that a number of years ago. And he goes around the world training people for really what has begun the second half of life. Because we're never done doing God's kingdom work. And so he is a national figure, has worked with many churches, but he's also a member here at Calvary Church, has provided leadership for us. He and his family, he is a father, he is a husband, he is a grandfather. And so we're glad to have all of the family of the Shanks with us here. But uh, would you welcome with me Bob Shank as he comes and brings God's word to us. Well, now that my eulogy has been done, we'll be at Fairhaven in a few hours, and you can put me down. Good morning. I don't know what time you got up this morning, but I was up at four. I've spoken hundreds of times at Calvary Church. This is the most important 
opportunity I have ever had to address anyone here. I came to Calvary in 1968, 49 years ago, as a teenager in high school. I stayed. Sherry and I were married, and I joined Calvary Church along with her in 1972. I was elected to the elder board the month after Mike Samsvig died in 1982. Our first order of business was to begin a search process that brought David Hawking here. I served for nine years on the elder board in the years that followed. We reached a place where we were outgrowing Samsvig Chapel, we call it today, then it was the sanctuary. We went to three services, but uh, Dave didn't want to do three services, and so he asked me to rotate with him. And for two years, I did one of the three services every Sunday morning in rotation with Dave, using his outline, but delivering it from my perspective. This building was built. I left to pastor another church for four years. I've been at Calvary Church as my church home now for 49 years. My family is here. My daughter is on the ministry staff. My son-in-law is an elder. All of our grandchildren have grown up through Calvary School, as my daughters did. This is home. This morning, I want to share with you at this vital moment in our church's history. Only three times in 50 years has the church prepared to transition power to a new senior pastor. This is so important that I'm going to ask you in the next few minutes to dial back all of our preferences and personal opinions and listen to the Word of God and His desire as expressed through the Scriptures for us today. I'm grateful for Dave's reminder that we are on the cusp of the 500th anniversary of the event that marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, 1517, 34-year-old Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 95 verses, we would look at it, in his epistle that he was prepared to defend from the Scriptures. Five tenets came from that. The Bible alone, grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, and the glory of God alone. And if we come to the table today with anything but that, as we consider what we will be doing as a congregation in two weeks, we are off point. I want you this morning with me to pray our surrender to the God who is the head of the church as we prepare to hear from his word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we surrender ourselves to you, to your son, to his kingdom, to his purposes, to the magnificent insight that we have from the word of God. You have told us that we have the mind of Christ, but that's not a, uh, an unknowable truth. It has been articulated in the words of your scripture, and we hold it most highly. We will seek its counsel and direction in all that we do in our lives that is of critical importance. And we as Calvary Church recognize that we are at a moment of critical importance. 
as we set a course for a hundred years as a church, but even more than that, as we set a course for day in, day out, representing the God of glory who sent his son at great personal sacrifice to make our redemption possible. And so this morning, we come and surrender to you at great personal sacrifice, the sacrifice of our own personal ideas and preferences. God, we come to surrender to you and to seek your mind, your will, your direction in our church, your church, Calvary Church. Speak to us, I pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning, I just want to recognize with you, um, I had to give this a title, so it is the mystery and the methods of church leadership. And we come conflicted because we spend most of our week, most of our days, most of our waking hours as Americans immersed in a culture that is in conflict. Would you agree with that? We are in a culture of conflict today And I can't remember in my lifetime a moment when it has been more pronounced than it is today. Just this week, I've heard people saying things that had to do with impeachment, the elimination of the electoral college, all kinds of things. And then I come back to uh, the Bible of America, which is the United States Constitution. 4,800 words in the Constitution, 7,600 words, including the amendments that have been made. And people crazy around us today who are proposing sign a petition because we want things differently because we don't like the way it's being done. Then I come back to our Bible, political Bible, that says, well, if you want to do that, that's great. You need to get two-thirds of the Congress behind that, and then it goes to a conventions of the states that will determine whether three-quarters of the states are in agreement, and then they'll sign on. It's unlikely, isn't it? But it's crazy how crazy people have become in our midst today as Americans. Let me say to you, we've come into a safe place here because this is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. Democracy says bottom-up and theocracy says top-down. Bottom-up says we've got change every two years, every four years, every six years. Top-down says he is the God who is for our forever the, the one who is beginning to end, the one who will never be replaced. Are you glad that eternity affords us a place where there are no political campaigns every two years? The King of Kings will never run for re-election. He'll never have opposition. There will never be someone who didn't win. There will be, but he's in the lake of fire and we won't have to listen to him on nightly talk shows. But I want you to hear with me this morning that the theocracy of the Lord Jesus have begun, has begun today in his church. One day will come when he establishes himself on his throne here. And he will reign forever and ever. And I'm not a charismatic, but I can say an amen to that. Couldn't you? I want you to think today about the mystery of his church. And I want you to pull out that public Bible if you don't have your own open, I'm going to Ephesians chapter 4, and God presents the blueprint for the congregational life that we have together, and for the congregational life that has characterized the body of Christ for 2,000 years. I'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 16. 
Paul writes, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Friends, this is an amazing passage from which we learn God's intent for his church. And it begins by giving us a sense of his atmosphere. The atmosphere. Are are you aware of the atmosphere? We aren't. Fish don't know that they're wet. We don't know about the atmosphere until you take us out of it and we find ourselves gasping for breath. The atmosphere surrounds us. Our problem is when the atmosphere becomes toxic. In your home, you have at least a smoke detector, perhaps a carbon monoxide detector. Uh, Those detectors are designed to be latent and quiet unless the level of a toxin in the air elevates to the point that it puts off an alarm. It's not a nuisance from which you pull out the battery. You get out of the house because you could die from it. God establishes the atmosphere that he wants to pervade his church. What is that atmosphere consisting of? Seven things he articulates in these verses. First, this is an atmosphere where humility is in play. The toxin that the enemy wants to inject is arrogance. What is arrogance? Arrogance is when I declare that I know best and I'm not teachable. There's no one who knows more than I. A second thing that God looks for in our atmosphere at church is that we are gentle. And the antithesis is to be harsh. Gentle is what you are with someone weaker than yourself. Harshness is what you do when you demand preference for yourself. He looks for an atmosphere of patience. And patience says, I'm going to wait it out. Resistance says, I'm going forward with or without you. He's looking for an environment in which we are tolerant rather than prejudiced. Tolerant saying, there are other points of view and mine is not better than anyone else's. Prejudice says, I've already come to the conclusion and I have no interest in what you have to say. He says that the atmosphere that he wants to pervade us is one of diligence. 
rather than disregarding. Diligence says, I'm staying with the right thing for long enough to let God work. Instead, disregard says, if it doesn't work quickly, I'm going my own direction. He's looking for an environment where we're unified rather than dissenting. The prayer that Jesus prayed from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, John 17, emphasizes his desire that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And that the world would find in our unity something that they find nowhere else but would draw them here. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. He's looking for a place where peace pervades rather than the discord that so characterizes the world around us. It's fascinating that you can walk into an environment and tell quickly whether the toxins are present. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever entered into a work environment where it was toxic, a home environment where it was toxic, a church environment that had become toxic? There's something compelling about the rich, clean air of God's church when it's done his way. Who is the leader of the church? Paul makes it very clear in his blueprint that God in his three persons is involved in his church. Let me read it again. Beginning in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope in your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father. To each one, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Operative within this space is the leader of the church, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, represented in this body that he says is his body. The leader of the church is God. I so appreciate that Dave reminds us constantly that while he serves in the title of senior pastor, and though we have a legal designation in our bylaws that we have a senior pastor, that in fact the senior pastor of our church, of every legitimate church, is Jesus himself. The scriptures tell us that we are the body of Christ, and Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians 12 that each of us has a part in that body. We are members of that body. Some are hands, some are feet, some are organs, some are mouths, some are ears, some are eyes. We all play a part, but Christ is the head. Who makes the decisions around here? According to God's word, Jesus does. We have the mind of Christ. Today, um, we are here in God's church at his invitation to do his work. And when critical decisions are needed, we seek from him the direction that we need. And I'm so grateful that God has given gifts to his church. And in this passage, Paul describes gifts that Jesus gave to his church. What are those gifts? Five of them, he said. First, he gave some to be apostles What are apostles? Capital A apostles were a limited pool. They were people who saw Jesus resurrected and who were appointed to leadership in the first wave. But the small A apostle role continues. The apostles are the frontier ministry people, the people who start things that has not been started before. Uh, He gave some as prophets. When we think of prophecy, we think of someone who can foretell the future. When God talks about prophets, he talks about people who speak truth to power, and call out sin. He gave some as evangelists. Evangelists are the folks who articulate the message of the 
cross of Christ and the gospel that invites us into life everlasting through surrender to what Jesus did on our behalf. He gave some as pastors and some as teachers. Pastors, the shepherds of the flock. Teachers, the one who t- ones who take difficult truth and transfer it from God's ancient revelation into our contemporary lives. Each of those are gifts from God. Are you grateful for those gifts from God? What is the purpose of the church? How do we know that what God wants to happen here is happening? Well, these are the markers. First of all, we're being equipped. What does that mean? Well, arms are being equipped to be great arms. Legs are being equipped to be great legs. Mouths are being equipped to be great mouths. Each of the parts we play as members of the body is being developed in its own particular specific expertise. Uh, We see building up. What is that? It's encouragement. It's uh, the confidence that we are everything God made us to be in raw form. And as we're equipped, we become refined and capable. And that any fear that we don't have what it takes to fulfill God's purpose for us is misplaced because we have been provided the power of the Holy Spirit and the mind of God. And we move forward with confidence. We have unity when that happens. The body is not at, at odds with itself, not in conflict with itself. It is working together for the same out, outcome. We have knowledge going on. What does that mean? God's truth has become our truth. And we are aware of it when we read it, but we're aware of it when we walk away from it because your word I have hidden in my heart that we don't have to wait to open the book or Uh, somehow get on our phones to open up the text. The text lives in us. And ultimately, we're here with maturity. What does maturity look like? All those things present and in power. That is the measure, and it's perturbing perhaps at times to recognize that I could be 30 and mature and 60 and immature because the markers of maturity are far more important than the chronology of my lifespan. What's the ultimate? Well, the ultimate, Paul makes clear, as a result, if this is all working, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever, what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. And it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You see, that's what God wants to be true of us. That we are being built up as a church individually and collectively in our own maturity and in our outward growth of others joining us in the process. That at the end of the day, every decision that is made that comes from the mind of Christ goes toward that end. That that is our ultimate outcome. And our success metric as a church is captured in Paul's description. I said that that is the mystery of the church. That's what God's grand plan for the church is. That's his grand plan for Calvary Church and has been for 86 years. And I pray will be for another 86 years. What's your prayer? I've found myself at times through this process that was introduced on Labor Day to us as a congregation, caught in the 
trap of asking, what do I want for me? And then quickly coming to the conclusion that I really am asking, what do I want for my grandchildren? How do I assure that the church that drew me here and kept me here for 49 years is the church that they're growing up in that will keep them here for the next 49 years? I have the privilege of having Sherry and I, our two daughters, live within walking distance of our home. Our family's together around the table frequently. There's almost a 60-year age span from the oldest to the youngest at that table. And let me just say to you that when all three generations are together, you have to defer. And let me tell you who I defer to, the youngest, not the oldest. When we sit down in front of a screen to watch something together, the question is, what's right for the youngest to watch, not what does the interest of the oldest point us toward? Sherry and I have more than enough time to eat what we want and see what we want when it's just us. But our interests are spanning three generations now because we want the family together developing memories and experiences that will be healthy and compelling and will always, no matter where my grandchildren end up, they'll always want to be back at that table because it will have memories of the best of life. Isn't that what you want in your family? Is this an audience or an oil painting? Is that what you want in your family? Yes. Is that what you want in your church? Yes. We say that we seek from the scriptures our direction in the essential issues of life. True? Because that's true. I go back to the scriptures and ask, how did church leadership succeed, not just succeed in terms of when, how did it occur in terms of transfer in the first generation? Let me show you the three models that jump out of Scripture at me. And the first is intriguing from Acts chapter 1. Let me set the stage for this because that's important. Jesus returned to heaven at the Mount of Olives. And the guys were still, after three years, they're still saying, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, that's going to happen, but it will be a while. You've got some work to do first. Start here in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Just weeks before, he said the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a witness to every people group, and then the end would come. But he said, guys, you're going to have to stick around here. Don't leave town until you get the Holy Spirit. And he left for heaven, and they stayed waiting for Pentecost. But in the wait period... The church gathered together to pray. There were 120 believers at that moment. And they had 12 chairs up front for the apostles, but one was empty because Judas had uh, betrayed Jesus and left their ranks. And they felt it necessary to get that seat filled immediately. And it's fascinating. They prayed and they named two candidates. And the text says they put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, remember this. They saw the need to fill the leadership seat, but they did not yet have the Holy Spirit. 
They were operating as mere humans with a desire to honor God, but they didn't have access to God through the power of the Holy Spirit yet. And the best they could do was come up with two candidates and a ballot. And from the ballot, here's how they chose. They rolled dice. Folks, um, I'm not advocating that as the method today. We now have the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's no longer put up multiple candidates and see who wins. It's now a very different model, and it began to unfold in a very different way. Here's the second way that we find in the New Testament. Chosen by the chosen. It's a fascinating text. Paul, in his ministry, was raising up younger leaders constantly as he was pursuing his personal calling to take the church to the non-Jewish, Gentile, Roman Empire. Two of those um, protégés of his were Timothy and Titus. After after Paul's uh, third journey was finished and he was released from prison in Rome, he had a period of time when most believe across the history that is not written into the New Testament, he made his way to Crete. We know he got there because of his writing, but we don't know the historic details. But we know that Titus was there with him. We know that, Ty- that Paul left. The church likely had been there for 30 years because we know from Acts 2 that there were people from Crete who had been there at Pentecost, heard the gospel, responded, and took it home with them. Paul's now spent time in Crete, and here's what he found. An island that had about 100 cities at that time, about 300,000 people. There were churches, but they were loosely constructed and non-functional. And Paul left Titus on the island with a mission. He wrote, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Paul said, Titus, you're going to go from city to city. By the way, Cretans were not easy people. In fact, in the inspired text later in the same passage, Paul said, Cretans were known to be liars. They were a difficult culture. But in that setting, Paul said, Titus, you go appoint elders. This was not going to be some other method, not some Roman Empire approach. No, it was going to be going, and by Paul's commission, Titus would find the people who fit the profile and appoint them to be the leaders in each church, city by city. That was with Titus. Here's a third model from Paul's letter to Timothy. To Timothy, he said, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. 
Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery or the board of elders. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. It's fascinating. To him, he said, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. That first church without the Holy Spirit, we're going to have to throw dice, cast lots. We don't know how to come to a good conclusion. To the churches in Crete that were in need of leadership, Paul put Titus on the ground to appoint the leaders. The young man who would assume the responsibility ultimately to pastor the church in Ephesus that Paul had planted and then had to leave because the church became too influential in the city and the sale of idols was declining because of the power of the church. Paul and Silas were sent out of the city by the city council's demand. Timothy was left behind to pastor that church. And he would return later in his ministry life to be the ongoing leader of a church planted started by the Apostle Paul, who wants that duty. Here's the fascinating reality, friends. It was the leaders laying hands on the next leader who had received the gift of pastoring and teaching that God said was his gift to the church. Method, how would that occur? The laying on of hands by the board, the presbytery, the elders who had been appointed in accordance with God's design. And that transfer of power from the corporate leaders, the elders, to the one who would lead was modeled by Paul in a church that he had founded but did not stay with, nor did he stay with any of the churches that he founded. Friends, as we seek the mystery today, how does God provide leadership succession in his church? I can say to you with complete confidence in the power of the living God, God has already chosen the next senior pastor for Calvary Church. And he's a gift from God. Now, friends, on Tuesday this week, I was involved in a board meeting in Albuquerque, New Mexico for America's 18th largest church. I serve on their board. I'm on the board of three very large churches in three states And it's curious today that some of the largest churches, most significant ministries that God is using to impact communities around our country today, do you know what's true of most of those churches? They're being pastored by their founders and they do not have membership. Hear what I just said. They are pastored by their founders and they do not have membership. Their churches have no tradition of transfer of leadership because it's never happened before. But one of the things that will not happen in those churches is a congregational vote. Why? Because there are no members who are uh, giving voting responsibility. What's their model? The leadership will present the next leader. And the church will be faced with accepting or choosing not to align, that will be their choice, certainly, but there is no format in governance for them to have a voice in the process. 
Not true at Calvary. Calvary Church, when you joined Calvary Church, you joined on the basis of learning something about the church's history, our doctrine, our bylaws, as I did when I joined in 1972. And you know what we've joined is a church where we have a voice. Every year we have candidates that have been presented by the elders to be the next wave of elders who will serve a three-year term. And we get to affirm those selections because Someone has spent hundreds of hours looking at the options and have put names before us. That uh, vote is not symbolic. It's important. Have you ever been to a wedding? This is where I find out whether your arms work. Have you ever been to a wedding? Yes. I have. And there's a moment in the wedding ceremony where these words are uttered. If anyone has just cause why this union should not occur, let them speak now or forever hold their peace. Have you ever been in a wedding where anybody spoke up at that moment? If you said, you know, I think she could do much better than him. <laughs> you know, that, that has no place there. What they're really asking is, do you know something about this person that would be disqualifying if it was known? If there's something that you know that they should know, it's time for you to say it. If you don't, join the celebration. The elders at Calvary Church have been tasked with the responsibility every time leadership transition takes place to vet candidates and to come with a recommendation and we have an opportunity to participate in this form if anyone has a good reason why this person has um, perhaps been misrepresented or is not understood in the manner that would disqualify them from from God's standards this is our opportunity to speak up If not, it's an opportunity for us to determine how God, the church, the body of Christ, where Jesus is the head, how God provides the method. I believe that we're going to be uh, experiencing the opportunity to participate in the work of God, chosen by the chosen, promoted from within, laying on of hands by elders who have said, we believe this is God's selection, and then ratified recognized by the congregation. And as we do that, friends, the mystery of God and his plan for our church will become a mystery into which we have been invited to participate. And I can tell you with full confidence in God, full confidence in the leaders that we have voted every year to place in service to God, And the work that they've done over these last two years to present a candidate, I am going to celebrate in agreeing with their leadership recommendation in two Sundays. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're not campaigning. We're not here with personal agendas. We're not here to seek a way to advance our objectives. We're here to find our place in your plan, in your church. We seek our direction from your word. There is no source that stands alongside your word to speak into this process. You and you alone, God, are all and all to us. May we treat this awesome responsibility of speaking into the process at our appropriate moment to align with what you're doing in your church for your kingdom 
in this place we call our church home. And God, um, you took a great risk choosing us. Thank you for looking past all of our fault, all of our disqualification, all of our quirkiness, and adopting us to your family. We stand in awe of your remarkable grace and love. We pray in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Bob. It truly is a mystery how God works. 22 years ago, Calvary Church voted me a senior pastor. I'm still rather amazed by that as well, that God somehow divinely orchestrates his will through the leadership who are the elders of Calvary Church. And our elders, I just want to commend them. We're so thankful for their leadership over this last year as they have prayed, they have fasted, they have consulted with others, including Bob. We've gone to other churches who have gone through this process or are going through this process so that uh, we could understand everything that God would want us to know. And God brought truth. God brought his uh, understanding of what he would have us to do. And so that is why we have come to this point that on November the 12th we'll present to you, Pastor Eric Wakeling, for your affirmation. And so please continue to pray with us and for this journey. Uh, It's exciting, and uh, it is in many ways mysterious. But God is still that wonderful God who is going to miraculously perform his will through each of us here as well. We'd like to receive our offering at this time. I'm going to pray, but after the offering is passed, if you'd like to come up, we have prayer points on either side. I invite elders, leaders to come to the prayer points, and if you'd like someone to pray with you, maybe you're going through a time of change and transition. Sometimes it's marriage, sometimes it's jobs, sometimes it's health. Sometimes we just have these issues that are just really difficult for us to work through. We would love to pray with you and, and uh, answer any questions we can have uh, that might be helpful, but also just to listen to you as well. So come up here as we worship together, and uh, we'd love to support you through this time. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this day. We're thankful that we have these days each week where we corporately gather together to remember and to honor you, to remember that you are the audience of our worship here as we go into these songs that, God, we want to bring praise and honor to your name and that you are the one God, the one true Lord, and that, Father, you manifest yourself in so many different ways but allows us to be able to interact with you through prayer, through giving, and, uh, Lord, through worship. So, Lord, hear our prayers and, Lord, receive our offering as an act of worshiping you now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.